AI Paul McCartney there singing a uh, slightly different version of Yesterday. Uh, how'd you like that one, Adam? <laughs> <laughs> what a world do we live in? Uh, I yeah. had a good, good chuckle. Yeah, that one sort of broke my brain a little bit. Although I am looking forward <laughs> to the future where we get to ask some music AI, hey, can you just re-record Blood Sugar Sex Magic by the Red Hot Chili Peppers with Jimi Hendrix on guitar? Yeah, I'd, I'd be in for that. That sounds yeah. amazing. Yeah. And uh, that, of course, is by a user called uh, There I Ruined It, who you can find on TikTok and YouTube, <laughs> and uh, absolutely hilarious stuff. Go check them out to hear more of your favourite songs being ruined. This is Risky Business, and my name is Patrick Gray. Uh, this week's show is brought to you by KSOC. KSOC is a Kubernetes security company uh, that doesn't just make a Linux agent that you have to shim into everything. They're actually designed to be a pure play Kubernetes security solution. Uh, so whether you're rolling your own clusters or you're renting them, uh, you can find them at ksoc.com, and they've got... Uh, uh, some some cures for what ails you. Uh, KSOC co-founder Jimmy Mester is this week's sponsor guest and he'll be joining us later on uh, to talk about why understanding the context of security issues that pop up in Kubernetes environments is so important. That is coming up later. But first up, as always, we're going to get into this week's news with Adam Boileau. And Adam, the big news story that broke uh, last Thursday, our time, Wednesday in the United States, is uh, this whole thing about Vault Typhoon, which is the new big scary China APT we've all got to worry about. Some of the coverage has been a little bit hysterical. I'm looking at you, New York Times, right? <laughs> Talking about how <laughs> Oh, yeah, they, they hacked a telco in Guam, so they're after Taiwan. But it's interesting activity that appears to have kicked off sometime in 2021. Uh, there's a little bit of a disagreement between various vendors on the intent of these intrusions. Uh, but walk us through exactly what this, uh, what this crew is doing. Yeah, so we've seen, uh, you know, some intrusions across various pieces of critical infrastructure, you know, around power supply and communications and things. Uh, and... The, the conversation about intent, I guess, is one that you alluded to. So there's been some cases where the targets are not, you know, clearly not of intelligence value, but would be of value for sabotage, for interrupting, you know, critical infrastructure uh, if the conflict were to kick off. Um, whereas we've seen other research to say, like, this looks like intelligence gathering. You know, we've seen them extracting... Um, you know, design documentation, and you know, in the case of control systems, looking for control systems documentation, which kind of, you know, it could just be intelligence gathering. Well, could well be that that's the thing. I mean, China's always trying to look at how other people are doing things, right? So that they can they can copy them and bite their style. You know, so those sort of design documents they're going to be useful either for intelligence purposes or for disruption purposes. But we've got Secure Works on one hand saying, eh, we think this is intelligence gathering," and then we got Microsoft and people like Rob Joyce on the other side saying, "No, no." this is absolutely preparation for disruption. Yeah, and, you know, it can be both. I mean, as you say, like, yeah. there's plenty of examples of um, Chinese intelligence agencies helping themselves to, you know, commercial information or infrastructure information. And, you know, sometimes it's a case of while you're there, you may as well. And, you know, it could be different, um, you know, once you've got access and you have tasking from different agencies or different upstream, you know, kind of people sending directions, you know, they can be different things. But it's kind of hard to divine intent this early on in the preparation of the bath space. Um, yeah. But, you yeah, know, could be, could be either or. And it's interesting that the, um, you know, the disclosure of this group does seem to have shaken out a few extra instances of them being inside environments you know as a result of uh, all the publicity which is, is exactly why it was done in the first place so in that respect you know success for this more open communication out of the you know intel agencies and out of uh, in this case microsoft yeah, I mean, the tradecraft here is very 2023. I think there's been a little bit too much made of it being sophisticated and, oh, my God, they're using lolbins and, you know, just, just living off the land. And, I mean, that's just how you do it now. If you were starting from scratch, it's pretty much how you'd do it. And an interesting thing is, you know, we've got uh, Microsoft saying that they're entering networks via bugs in Fortinet devices right it's so mm -hmm, funny because mm -hmm. like i use them as a whipping boy like so much on this show and i was starting to even feel guilty about it because it's not just them and then this this whole thing breaks and it's like yeah it's fortinet <laughs> fortinet yeah, is exactly. at the root of this interestingly enough though the microsoft blog post on this says 
they're accessing these Fortinet devices somehow, right? So it, 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 they're kind of hinting that it could be some O'Day that the Chinese have that we don't know about, which would um, be another interesting facet to this. Uh, the SecureWorks write-up says that they came in via, you know, 1FA on a Citrix uh, border device, which is also like Halerabad, as you would say. Uh, but yeah, once they get in via your crappy, you know, circa 2005 uh, border device, uh, then they go full domain compromise and there's web shells and, and, and lull bins and whatnot. So that's just the, that's just the tradecraft here, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's what, you know, it's what everyone does because it works. And I mean, living off the land is not the exciting new technique that perhaps it, it once was, you know, when having to drag in a Mimikatz or whatever else, you know, would set off antivirus or other, you know, defensive controls. Like just using Windows commands to help yourself to a copy of the Active Directory, like that's pretty normal. Yeah. Uh, and they're, you know, the tradecraft is pretty workaday, um, you know, reading through some of the examples. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, when you think about like what orgs can do to protect themselves against this sort of thing, two things spring to mind. One is managed EDR that's actually got people watching it and, uh, you know, authorized to respond because ultimately that's what EDR does is it looks at execution events and surfaces the funny ones, right? That where if you've got competent people monitoring it, they can then go and fiddle with it. I mean, we've got two MDR sponsors now on this program uh, this year and you know there are some really good MDR organizations out there and the other thing that comes to mind is allow listing and allow listing done well and I know I sound like a broken record but you know airlock is really good at stopping this sort of stuff because they've got a real heavy focus on disallowing the use of lol bins because you don't need them all open all the time right and it, and it sort of is a bit painful that Microsoft out of the box allows some of the stuff it allows yeah, absolutely. The like execution prevention is super useful for that very early part of the process, you know, before you've started to see it, see what the controls are in the environment. And, you know, the point where someone is running anti-DSUtil on your domain controller, like you have to kind of be domain admin at that point. So all your controls have already failed. But in terms of an MDR offering, like that seems like a thing you would spot and respond to pretty quick because mm. not exactly normal. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure what uh, Airlock do in the domain controller, like actually on the domain controller example, in this case, they're using WMI to run it directly on the domain controller. Um, and, you know, I don't know how many people have airlock on their DCs. Like they probably should. No, this, but, that's you know, a pretty common use case. Yeah, like it's, you know, but it is best expertise is initial entry, you know, weird stuff happening, dropping out of emails or dropping out of whatever else. Well, um, but, but you catch a lot of the, like, yeah, a lot of the utilities that people are trying to invoke to move laterally and stuff, like even if That's it fails true, yes. at picking That's it up true. the first time, like when you see some of these blocked execution events bubbling up in the console, like they're, you know, it's pretty clear something <laughs> bad's happening, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, probably yes. So yeah, we've linked through to a few stories about this, a couple from Reuters, the hysterical one from the New York Times, <laughs> uh, which the headline is Chinese malware hit systems on Guam. Is Taiwan the real target? And it's, you know... I mean, you know, and then they talk about spy balloons in the story, and it's just, it's, 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 it hurts. It hurts. And pierce, the piercing firewalls line was the one that got me. It's like, what, what year is it that we're talking like this? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Now, let's talk about some, some other stuff. This is an interesting write up from Mandiant we've got here. I first read about this one in Catalan's newsletter, uh, Risky Business News. Everyone should subscribe. We're closing in on 10,000 subscribers on that one, which is pretty cool, considering it's only been a thing for like 14 months. So, And, and given such how high volume it is, right? It's, a, it's yeah. a lot to keep up with, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, it really is. I don't know how he does it. But um, uh, Mandiant turned up this piece of industrial control system malware that looked really, really spooky. But they think they've figured out where it came from, and it's actually not that spooky. Yes, this is a thing that they have called cosmic energy, uh, and it's a piece of tooling that can be used for communicating with control systems, devices, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, it seems like a training tool. Uh, it has some comments in it that make it look like it's part of some exercises uh, involving uh, Ross Telecom Solar, a Russian cybersecurity company, uh, and you know, it, it doesn't look operational. Like it looks like a learning tool, a thing you would do if you were expecting to have all of your power control systems hacked by an adversary at some point. Um, so, I mean, I think the, I, I was discussing this one with Tom Uren yesterday and I said, I, I, I find the interesting thing about this 
is it sort of reveals a certain mindset where they think this is something that they have to drill for because this is the sort of stuff they've been doing to other people. Yeah, well, we've certainly seen, you know, very similar types of code used in uh, Ukrainian power systems and, you know, as well in some other places. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's clearly a thing that they want to do to other people, so it makes sense that they would want to be able to defend against it. And they've got, you know, implementations of some control systems, protocols and things uh, in here to support that. But, yeah, it's, it's, you know, I'm just thinking back to early on, and even in the Stuxnet era where you and I were talking about, you know, what these capabilities would be like and what you could do. And you know, the fact that they are now manifest and there's some Python code that implements them, you know, is a, you know, kind of throwback to how we were thinking, you know, a long time ago now and seeing yeah. it in the wild, seeing but it But now it's used. just run of the mill, right? And now it, it's just workaday, yeah. I mean, what's amazing too is that so many companies like yours, right, that do a lot of pen testing and stuff, the tooling's really got there over the years, right? Like pen testing firms build cool tools now. What is funny though is occasionally companies like Mandiant, FireEye, whatever, uh, flag them and do write-ups on them. I think there was a there was a great <laughs> yes. Twitter thread. The reason I mentioned FireEye, you know why I'm mentioning FireEye, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is because they caught one of your tools uh, a while ago and did a big Twitter thread analysis on it that you guys never <laughs> acknowledged and never talked about. But it was there was a bit of mirth involved, right? There was. There was some. There was some good comedy. I know the the people involved at our end were quite proud of <laughs> seeing seeing some of their stuff. Uh, you know, end up in the thread of the day or whatever it was. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's a uh, and we you know we can't really talk about the stuff and especially you know when you know it's in a niche industry or a niche vertical and you know we have to keep our mouth shut but it's, it's kind of I mean, I think the reason way. i'm mentioning this one is that must have been at like five years ago or something now yes it was a while ago i'm allowed yeah, to leave this was. in aren't i yeah 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 you can leave this in fun times fun times <laughs> uh what else have we got here oh now this is interesting right so a little while ago we spoke about some research out of blackberry that suggested that the group behind the cuba ransomware and the rom-com trojan um, had pivoted and were now doing the work of the Russian state, right? Like attacking organizations in Ukraine and attacking organizations that are sort of uh, associated with that conflict, right? On, on the side that isn't Russia. And Trend Micro has really added weight to this theory with its own research here, which says that there was this, you know, it's like someone flip, flipped a switch uh, in October last year and um, all of a sudden the motivations or the targeting behind this crew just radically changed, which makes you wonder if they got, you know, rumbled by the state and told, you know, this is what you're doing now. Yeah, there's a couple of options, I guess, right? One is they're a crime group that, uh, as you say, has been rolled or, you know, taken patriotic advice and decided to commit themselves to the cause. Or they were already on government payroll and just, you know, either moonlighting or, you know, making up their budget, uh, you know, in the North Korean style, Either way, you know, the fact they've pivoted so strongly into attacking uh, Ukrainian systems and infrastructure and stuff related to Russian geopolitical interests, you know, does show a very strong nexus of, of people, even if we don't exactly know what the motivations were that got them there. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting, though, because there's been a lot of ink spilled throughout the last year and a half, you know, since this conflict in Ukraine started. There's been a lot of ink spilled on whether or not, you know, the crime groups in Russia would be sort of captured by the state and forced to do this sort of thing. And now we're seeing this actually happen. It's not actually getting that much attention, which I find weird. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I guess we were all, you know, all a Twitter when the, you know, the conflict kicked off about the cyber parts of it. And then they were a little underwhelming uh, and yeah. we've kind of all forgotten a bit. But yeah. This, but but this everyone is... was predicting like an instant pivot from all these crime groups. Yes. Like the FSB was going to round them up, beat them with lead pipes and make them attack the West. And we haven't really seen that, right? And, and this is one example of that happening. I'm just wondering if this is a sign of things to come. And I think it was early on, Dmitry Alperovich predicted that uh, if things got nasty for Russia that they would do this and I said to him well you know maybe you know I wasn't convinced uh, and I'm just saying there is now a sign that at least one group is kind of moving in that direction right and and don't forget too October last year is is a time when things were not really going well for Russia at all no, um, yeah. not that they've really improved all that much <laughs> no. um, but yeah so the timing's interesting and I don't know you, you see where I'm going with that? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Like with the that kind of conversation about at what point in a conflict between nations, you know, do we overcome the threshold where we'll start to use the state's capability in those ways? You know, whether it's in you know, a PRC and you know Huawei, or whether it's Russia and crime groups, whether it's North Koreans and you know 
North Korean citizens and North Korean employees, um, you know, or in the case of the United States, like, you know, Microsoft and Cisco and, you know, where's the bar? How bad does the conflict have to be before the US government tells Microsoft to brick, you know, all the windows in Russia? And you know, where that where we are on that scale obviously varies between countries and where we whether we are, you know, interested in economics, you know, or whether we're interested in politics or, or uh, you know, Microsoft wouldn't just wouldn't do that, right? Because they'd lose their global market. Well, well, they would, but like how bad, like, you know, clearly the threshold is very high yeah, for that to yeah, happen, yeah, yeah. but, you know, if the no, I get, I get your flying, point, like things, yeah, there would have to be ICBMs flying around at that yes. point, I think, you know. Uh, let's not go there. <laughs> let's <laughs> not. Let's not. Um, now, look, it's a good week to talk about sort of weird attributions and unknown motivations, right? Because we've got a few interesting stories along those lines here. Uh, the next one we're going to talk about is Anonymous Sudan, which is uh, clearly linked to Killnet. I actually got an email from a listener recently just talking about like, oh, yeah, you know, they're completely like basically one-to-one with, with, with Killnet and whatever. It's a definite Russia nexus there. Uh, they've apparently been DDoSing Scandinavian Airlines. Gee, I wonder why. And uh, dema- are demanding a $3 million ransom to stop DDoSing uh, Scandinavian Airlines. Well, I guess we'll see whether the Scandinavians end up paying. I, I somehow doubt it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we have seen... Their initial you know, price bunch- was 3500 bucks, and they have steadily <laughs> increased it and now they're asking for $3 million. <laughs> Sounds very serious. Um, but yeah, we have seen obviously a bunch of attacks uh, in Scandinavia as, uh, you know, from anonymous Sudan and disrupting aspects of their, you know, aspirations to join NATO and so on and so forth. So yeah, not, not a particularly credible Sudanese threat, but uh, still an actor that's pretty active. Um, in their particular areas of interest. Now let's talk about Rise to Overthrow, which is a self-described hacktivist group that targets Iranian targets, right? And it's look, it's really tempting to say, oh, well, clearly that's got to be Israel, right? Because in this, in this story that we're going to talk about now, this is their second sort of hack and leak uh, this month. And this one's a pretty big one. I'm going to let you spill the juicy details on this one, Adam. Uh, but, you know, I first came across this this morning and I spoke to Catalan uh, Kimpanu, our colleague, about this. And I said, look, because he, he wrote him up as a, as a hacktivist group. And I said, we, we need to put self-described in there because we, don't, we just don't know who these people are. But he made the point that... Every time they do something, the first anyone ever hears about it is when it pops up on the MEK website. And they are, of course, a political opposition party uh, in exile, an Iranian political uh, opposition party based in Albania. And uh, that led to all sorts of dramas with Iranian wiper campaigns and whatever that we've covered because, yeah, that, that caused all sorts of troubles for Albania. But, yeah, so so could it be Israel? Sure. Could it be actual hacktivists? Also, yes. And, and this is just the state of things these days. But walk us through what Rise to Overthrow uh, actually did to the Iranian government uh, this week, Adam, because it's pretty spectacular. Yeah, so there's a, a number of systems and environments that are associated with the Iranian presidency. Um, so these are systems that look after the internal network um, for managing the presidency. So I, you know, I don't know what the equivalent would be in a Western country, but I mean, there's you know a pretty important set of systems. So well, you know, I think like the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet d- here, right? Yeah, that would be the equivalent in New Zealand. Yes, yeah, so pretty important systems. Um, something like 120 servers were hacked, taken over, um, and these included like the management systems. Server controllers, I'm assuming Active Directory or whatever the whatever they use for management are there. Uh, all of the like sysadmins and technical administrators, and there's like they've hijacked the cameras in the data centers so they can see the servers and stolen emails and classified documents and, and so on and so forth. Like dozens of apps, dozens of websites, um, and you know looted this all out and started providing it out. You know, via the the MEK website, they doxed um, they doxed the vice president's like twenty five member bodyguard security team as well. Like they went for the throat on this one. Fifty terabytes of data exfiled. Yeah, like it's a pretty serious sounding breach, and I imagine a pretty rough day at the office for the people who work there. And like to my initial reading, this seemed too competent for activists, but. You know, that's maybe it's just because we don't have, you know, maybe we don't see great activism as much as we see, you know, Mossad doing Mossad things. But it yeah, but then again, we were we were su- we were suspicious on Guacamaya, right? We were, yeah. and they're legit. Guacamaya is legit. So I mean, it could be, and that's my point. We don't know. We don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm you know, I'm think back to like Phineas Fisher and some of the other, you know, very competent, probably activists, you know, kind of people. 
But, I mean, balance of probabilities is probably just Israel, but it might not be. So Yeah, I mean, you don't know, right? You're dealing with a highly motivated opposition party based outside of the country that is well-resourced. Like, this would not be beyond their capabilities, right? Especially when it would be easy to recruit Iranian dissidents who might have these sort of skills to do this sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Like it, a hundred percent could be as presented, but it could also be someone else. Yes, it's kind of hard to say. And the someone you know, else, as we've wink. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, to our earlier conversation, like the trade craft these days is pretty mature, and having the patience and time to learn a particular environment's nuance, like the, the things that are specific to an environment, so things like finding the cameras that look into the data centre, like that takes a degree of like, you, you, know, you have to spend a half a week on the SharePoint. And I know you're speaking you know. from experience. Because <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, I too have stolen access to data centre cameras. So like I kind of, yeah, like, you know, that takes tasking. And So you're saying they're not as smart as you are? Is that what you're saying, Mr. High and Mighty? (laughs) No one could possibly be as smart as me. They have to be working for a government. (laughs) I'm just saying the government employees are more likely to spend a very tedious couple of weeks reading SharePoint to figure out where the specifics like that are in any given environment. So yeah, I don't know, man. I've, 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 you know, I, I even know Iranians who if they had these skills, would spend the time. Yeah, well, well, exactly, you know, right. So it 100% could be activists. Nothing is more motivating to do this sort of thing than your country being under its current management, yes. you know? Yeah, uh, absolutely agree. Absolutely. Uh, anyway, so now, look, doing we're going to stay with... Doing it at a bank, though, boring. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, we've got another uh, uh, story about uh, Chinese cyber skullduggery. This one's interesting because of the motivation. Uh, this is a report from Aaron Ross, James Pearson, and Christopher Bing at Reuters, uh, where apparently, apparently a group of Chinese hackers have been attacking the Kenyan government, but it's the intelligence that they're after, which is the funny part. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So Kenya is a pretty key part of uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative uh, in that um, in that part of the world. Uh, and it appears that the Chinese spies are breaking into a bunch of you know parts of the government, trying to understand whether the Kenyans were planning on paying back the loans it took to build a bunch yeah. of roads, uh, a bunch of belts, a bunch of trains, etc. Uh, in Kenya. A bunch uh, of belts. I love it. Yeah, nine nine billion dollars apparently, and they're like, well, we want to see if they've actually they're actually going to pay us back. Which, uh, yeah, I wonder. I I wonder. I wonder if you know default is going to be an option for a lot of these you know poorer countries who are just saddled with crazy debt by China. You know, you do you do sort of wonder if we're going to see more, uh, you know, accountants hacking Chinese accountants hacking various uh, countries to see what the what the debt repayment plan looks like internally. Yeah, Yeah. offensive forensic accounting, I guess, is what what we would call this. Um, But I mean, they've already defaulted on some, like some of the private companies that were involved in Kenya have already defaulted um, and gone out of business, etc. And there's also some arguments that, you know, the the roads, etc. are not paying their bills yet, so there's no money to pay the Chinese. Um, And... Yeah, I mean, I guess it's probably not super unreasonable for the Chinese to go hack them and figure out. I can't imagine they found good news, though. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to tell uh, the boss? Yeah, you know? yeah exactly, uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, now, some spyware news, Adam, and NSO Group has new owners. We've seen this come together uh, over the last few months where the, the one of the founders, the O in the NSO, uh, had gradually been getting control of the company, got you know got a majority of shares, and now it's been acquired by a different. Its assets have been acquired by a different company or something. I don't know exactly how this restructure works, but I do know that all of the original equity holders, including the private equity firm that like once owned a huge stake of NSO, have been wiped out um, through this restructure, which makes me very very happy. Yeah, that's a, a nice a nice ending. I don't know what the resulting you know NSO these days is actually worth. I imagine well, quite a lot less. But apparently um, they're they're planning on keeping the the actual guts of the company running, like the spyware side of the business. They are keeping it running. So that's the bad news here. Yeah, I guess they probably got a bunch of support contracts outstanding um, and work that they have to provide. They probably you know every time we kill a bug, it does cost them big money. So. You know, those of you who work at Apple and Google and so on, you know, sitting on stashes of NSO bugs that you're in the middle of writing up, just, uh, you know, feel good. You're doing the Lord's work. Man, they wouldn't have just spun this off to keep support contracts going. Like, they're going to try to keep this going and sell to, you know, I mean, who is going to buy from NSO Group now, right? It's only going to be the absolute worst of the worst. 
Yeah, well, it, well, exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm the, and there's still quite a lot of worst of worst out there. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, you know, I don't, know, I don't know how deep they're, you know, how many bugs they've got on the shelf, like how much life, how long could they run it without having to spend a heap of money? I wonder. Um, I mean, I, I think people overestimate the percentage of effort that's just the bugs True. when it comes this, to stuff this like this, right? Like, and stuff like NSO is a platform. You know, it's, it's a surveillance platform and the bug is just a, the delivery method, right? And I think there's really, you can, buy, you can buy bugs. The bug is not the bit that people would be really necessarily giving them the money for. Even if they said, bring your own bugs to deploy our stuff, they're still going to get customers. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, all of the hard work doing the fiddly stuff, you know, we've talked about stealing browser cookies and stuff yeah. these days being more complicated and much more so on a closed platform. Um, so, yeah, there's absolutely there is more to it than the bugs. But, you know, I'm just thinking like in terms of runtime, like how long can they survive without having to spend buying new bugs in or paying people to find new bugs or whatever else? You know, how long is that window? Yeah, yeah. Well, I you know, I just have a sinking feeling that it's a (laughs) bigger window than you realize. Yeah, Uh, it probably is. And staying with spyware, Cisco Talos has a teardown on Intellex's Predator spyware, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, this is a a deep dive into the couple of components that they do have access to, uh, Predator being the main one, and talks through some of the capabilities of the platform, the mechanisms that it uses to bootstrap and get itself into a position uh, on Android phones. And yeah, if you're in the business of pulling apart mobile malware, uh, very much worth a read uh, to see what they've been uh, looking at. Now, uh, I just want to talk quickly about Twilio, because you remember a while ago we spoke about how... Twitter ending its, you know, uh, multi-factor uh, SMS two FA uh, was really because it was getting scammed out of a lot of money by dodgy network operators, right? And that Twilio <laughs> and similar companies weren't really incentivized to fix this issue. Looks like they've tra- they've had a change of heart. Like a Twilio customer sent me an email from them, uh, which says that effective June 21, 2023, Twilio will automatically configure your account to block messages for countries where your account did not have any historical use, but were known to be sources of SMS traffic pumping schemes. This is years too late, but I guess well <laughs> <Yes>. done, Twilio. <laughs> I mean, maybe yeah, Twitter would still be your customer if you had done this like 10 years ago. Yeah, it is a weird kind of confluence of incentives there where, you know, if they're charging per SMS, then they're, you know, kind of part of the scam in a way because, like, they're making money out of it. But, uh, yeah, a little bit too late for Twilio. uh, And I'm sure, you know, we've seen a bunch of people make a bunch of money out of some of these sorts of chargeback scams, uh, you know, where you're, you know, the intermediate carriers are paying back to the destination of these things. And Twilio was just one of them, but it was pre- it was much bigger money than I expected when we saw it yeah. come out of Twitter. Yeah, yeah, so much money. And I, yeah, I, I just wanted to quickly mention that. So that's good. Uh, now we're going to talk about some <laughs> bugs. <laughs> I spotted this one. I first spotted this one in Catalan's coverage because I was editing his, uh, the Risky Business News uh, uh, script this morning. And I'm like, Oh, this seems pretty bad. Now, of course, we all know about the paper cut vulnerabilities that that surfaced and then were used to just, you know, used by all sorts of groups, including Clop, to just, you know, burn down stuff left, right, and center. We got looks like we got some similar bugs in a similar package, which is called Printer Logic. Uh, funnily enough, and you you discovered this and pointed it out to me when you go to printerlogic.com. And you scroll down a bit, they've got a whole, you know, graphic saying, end the the uh, paper cut vulnerability nightmare by using our stuff, you know. Uh, but, geez, there's a bunch of bugs in here. And and when we clicked through, we actually saw that it was someone we knew who'd, who'd uh, uh, found these or reported these bugs. Eldar Markison. G'day, Eldar. I know he used to listen to the show. I'm not sure if he still does. But if you do, uh, hello and uh, great work. So it was Eldar uh, working with uh, Gareth Phillips, Jeff Thomas, Luke Simons, Nadim Salim, Stephen Bradshaw, Tony Wu, and Yana Paris uh, have found just an absolute ton of bugs in Printer Logic, and they've wound up disclosing them on full disclosure. So they've rolled completely old school on these. <laughs> and you it. think, well, gee, it's not really responsible to dump stuff on full disclosure. And then you get to the bottom and you read the timeline, uh, <laughs> and you're like, oh. Yeah, it's one of those. So these are the guys like saying, saying, oh, you know, uh, screw those paper cut guys. Like we're, we're much more secure. Use our stuff. And then you get to this timeline and, you, and it just, it does not look good. It um, really, really doesn't. Yeah. And basically they, they, they went to, they tried to do this disclosure through CERT CC, 
with limited success. They went to MITRE to try to get CVEs and they didn't even get CVEs and it all just got too hard and eventually they just dumped it all on full disclosure. But the reason we're talking about these bugs is these are the sorts of bugs that every time we see them in two, three weeks from now, Adam, we're going to be firing up our microphones to talk about the mass ex- exploitation of these bugs. Yeah, absolutely agree. And I think they must have had quite a party, uh, you know, finding some of these bugs because they've got almost one of every, you know, OWASP top 10 category. Like it's the full bingo card. But um, so this software is like cloud-based print servers uh, and has a client component, a bunch of other things. Um, But it's also seems to be written in PHP and not particularly good PHP. It's a virtual appliance. I wouldn't call that cloud. It's not just SaaS, right? Yeah, well, it's been printing is, you know, has a physical component in that, you know, you have on-premise devices and, and blah, 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 blah. But they have kind of like a SaaS service for printing from anywhere and those kinds of things. Um, but on the network is the point and probably externally accessible. Uh, and, you know, we've got CodeXec and we've got Auth Bypass, we've got SQL Injection, we've got cross-site scripting, we've got cross-site request forgery, we've got, you know, all all of the good juicy bug classes. And a partridge in yeah, a <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, you are absolutely right. We're going to see this exploited and and if you have uh, this in your environment, it's probably going to be time to talk to the vendor. I'm not sure what the state of patches is. I mean, this uh, post on full disclosure is pretty recent and there aren't patches yet. And I did not see any discussion of these on the vendor's website yet. Uh, so No, mm. just just them throwing shade at their competitor who, got, yeah. who had this happen to them. <laughs> yes, except in, in some ways kind of less bad given how bad some of these bugs are. But uh, yeah, so 18 different bugs reported in the full disclosure post. And if you've got it, you're probably going to get shelled next week. So yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> basically, is the uh, summary of that one. Exactly. Uh, And look, speaking of uh, trash bugs in trash software, Barracuda Networks, uh, we spoke about that bug, I think, uh, recently, or it was in one of our podcasts. Anyway, there's a um, pretty nasty Barracuda uh, bug that's been patched recently, and that one has been added to Sysakev, right? So people are using it. Yeah, exactly, right? So, you know, every time we see a bug like this uh, come out, like it used to be we'd talk about a bad bug and expect it to be, you know, used pretty much instantly and mass exploited. And it just wouldn't happen. And these days, those expectations have been completely inverted. Yeah, and especially for bugs like this, which is um, uh, command execution from, like, attachment names. So you literally stick backticks in attachment names, and this email, like, when the email gets processed on your security appliance... Uh, you get code execution and onwards to great victory and enterprise-wide compromise, which not really what you're looking for no. uh, in a security a security appliance. No, it's really not. And uh, <laughs> bad news for former users of the uh, Raid Forum's data breach website. Womp, womp. Yeah, their user database has leaked. So there'd been rumors uh, circling for years um, that Raid Forums had its had its database uh, database breached. Um, it turns out that's true, and something like half data on about half a million users has leaked. Doesn't include information on IP addresses, which would have been super juicy. But you've got you know a bunch of other data like usernames and um, uh, email addresses. Tying usernames to email addresses is going to be just so delightful for a bunch of uh, threat intel people. Although you know law enforcement already have this data because they they took over the site and, uh, you know, mirrored it and, you know, extracted everything off it. So <laughs> law enforcement agencies already have this data, you know, I, and, and I, you sort of wonder, like you'd think, oh, now Brian Krebs has this data, but you're sort of thinking Brian Krebs already probably had this data probably, as well, right? Yeah, so I'm not I'm quite sure. sure who now gets this data that who didn't have access to it earlier, but it's still funny. It, it is still funny and it's still, you know, anything that gets, you know, puts grit in the social wheels of the crime world is still helpful, even if it's not Krebs grade grit yeah. <laughs> being, being thrown in there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, speaking of Brian Krebs, he's actually written up a story about Freenom. Now, Freenom was one of these domain registrars that just would let anyone uh, register a domain, I think for free as well, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, as a result, they just had, you know, just phishing domains were just being yeeted out of their systems left, right, and center. And uh, this led to Meta actually suing Freenom to make them stop. And it looks like, uh, and I've got to admit, I'm surprised here, it looks like that's actually worked because in they've gone from, let's see, 60% of reported phishing domains in November 2022 uh, were Freenom domains. And that apparently has gone down now to about 15%. So... 
Yeah, because previously you'd report to Freenom they wouldn't do anything. It, it looks like that's actually changing. Yeah, and that's uh, that's certainly great news because I mean some of those domains were very widely used. I mean attackers would be you know picking up hundreds of thousands of them to use for command and control systems or whatever else you know beyond just regular phishing stuff. Um, so yeah, pretty significant drop. And I'm I'm surprised as well that it has actually worked out this way that we are seeing a drop. But you know these types of resources you know, of freely available domain registrars or, you know, other components that uh, are used by crime. Like, they tend to get sort of strip-mined, I suppose, like used up very, very quickly, burnt, moved on to the next thing. So, like, long-term, probably no difference, but, you know, definitely a pain in the ass for um, some people in the crime world, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, it's just adding that that friction, right? Like, just yes, make it exactly. a bit, you know, l- yep. let's just not make it easy for everybody, right? Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Ah, what else have we got here? We've got a report from CyberScoop. This one's interesting, right? So this one's from mm-hmm. Tonya Riley. There's a broad coalition of adv- advocacy groups urging Slack to, like, roll out E2EE uh, for people's, you know, messages between individuals on Slack, which I think just got my wheels spinning a bit and you had the same reaction, Adam, because on one hand you're thinking, but it's a business communications platform, right? Like is privacy a feature you really want or is good record keeping a feature you really want? Then again, maybe not having everything open to discovery is is going to be better. And, you know, I just sort of sat there with my, with my wheels spinning and I don't know what I think about this. I, I honestly don't. Do you think Slack should introduce E2EE messaging between individuals in a Slack channel? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great question, and I mean Slack is used in a really wide variety of places. Like its intended purposes for business inside business comms, and in that context, you know, having robust anti abuse controls and things is not really like because there's other processes for dealing with you know if you're going to go harass your boss via Slack, you're going to end up in the HR department pretty quick, you're right? And that fired. doesn't need a block yeah. function. You know, that needs administrative controls around it, and as you say, good record keeping. But there are a bunch of private communities that use Slack. You know, I'm thinking of, you know, some of the security interest groups and, and, you know, private communities that keep the wheels on the internet. A lot of those people use Slack. And maybe in that context, you know, there is sensitive information sharing and so on that's not ideal. And, you know, having your Slack admin, you know, access compromised, you know, is pretty bad, you know, in terms of exposing attachments, exposing content. But on the other hand, like retrofitting, robust effective crypto into slack seems like a lot of work and you know without a strongly defined threat model of what our expectations of slack would be it's kind of hard to see that working out well Um, and it really depends this is the thing that i kept thinking about is like whether or not you would want to enable this really depends on what sort of business you're in and what your record keeping requirements are and you know uh i just i just don't know what i think of it yeah, I mean, we use risky biz. Uh, we use Slack for risky biz internal yeah. comms, uh, and sometimes there's juicy, you know, juicy so tidbits juicy. in so in the juicy. chat and uh, <laughs> and other and other stuff. And you know, it would be you know I don't know it would be catastrophic for us to have all of our Slack history leaked, but it might be embarrassing. You know, if we're well, uh, I I'm using the stingy free tier, which means that it doesn't. <laughs> and this is a feature; it doesn't actually hold stuff beyond a certain date, so it's auto deleting, <laughs> which, which is, I love. Is good. That um, is good. You know, I, I would pay them to actually shorten that retention time because uh, it being ephemeral is a feature that I like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Risky Biz Slack, it's you and me and, and Tom and Catalan and, you know, a few other interesting people, right? And basically the general channel, it's like 10, 12 people, right? And the general channel is just dead until something big happens and then it's yeah. lively. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, yeah, and I'm like, would I be? Would I feel happier if that was E2EE? Probably. I would rather the scroll back was not in the clear on Slack's service. Well, Adam, that's actually it for the week's news. Thanks a lot for joining me. Uh, it's been great to chat to you, my friend, and we'll do it all again next week. We certainly will, Pat, and I'll talk to you then. That was Adam Boileau there with a look at the week's security news. And uh, before we get going, uh, before we continue, uh, I'd just like to say a quick uh, shout out and congratulations to John Grieg, a journalist at The Record, uh, who just got married and posted some awesome looking uh, uh, wedding photos to Twitter. Uh, Well done and congratulations to you, John. 
It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Jimmy Mester, the co-founder of KSOC. KSOC is a Kubernetes security company. If you have Kubernetes security needs, go have a look at ksoc.com. That's K-S-O-C.com. And uh, you can read up on their solution. But Jimmy joined me for this interview uh, about Kubernetes security. And he started off by explaining what the, like the, the most common challenges are in Kubernetes security right now. And here's what he had to say. The, the big problem that a variety of teams are having dealing with Kubernetes, it, it, it really comes down to context. So what we've discovered is uh, detection teams, security engineering teams, compliance teams all need to extract different pieces of information via alerts, logs, analytics to make their Kubernetes clusters kind of fold into the security program. And it's really hard to get that information reliably without being overwhelmed with alerts, right? And we don't mm. need more and more false positives or or issues that you can't act upon. So um, what we're building now is kind of a centralized engine to really drastically decrease that overload of really unnecessary um, issues and give you context for whatever team you're on to get your job done. So how do you then go about trying to help people? And, and this is what makes context hard, right? How do you go about about building a tool that helps people put things in context when context is something that varies so much between organizations? It does, yeah. So the first requirement, at least in the world of Kubernetes, is for your inputs to be real-time, right? The, the core problem that we've already solved at KSOC is that sort of real-time instrumentation where instead of scanning on a periodic interval and hoping that, you know, yesterday's scan still covers today's problems. Um, like that doesn't really work in Kubernetes because things change so frequently. So that's kind of the underpinning of, of all of KSOC. But then on top of that, the, the other problem is, okay, you're showing me where my issues are, whether it's a misconfiguration or a CVE or, you know, an over-permissive RBAC policy. What does that mean, right? What is it connected to in the greater picture of, of, of my risk, right? It's one thing to say I have a CVE running in an image that is, you know, part of a, an application that isn't internet accessible, has no other issues um, in the form of misconfigurations, and, you know, maybe that package isn't used. But it's another thing to say, you know, that that's a remote code execution style vulnerability, and it has privileged access to the kernel oh yeah and it's internet accessible and to top that we're actually seeing individuals or attacks happening on that particular workload so, so that's, that's what we the mean type when of it comes context, to context you mean right yeah 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 no that makes yeah. sense so you would have all of the information you would need wouldn't you to be able to figure those things out once you've got some external inputs and stuff but i can't imagine it's yeah it's i can't imagine it's as straightforward as i just made it sound yeah it it becomes so there's two sides. One is we have a, a security research team and are, I'd say we, we have built quite the Kubernetes security um, critical mass of expertise at KSOC. It's what we do. So we give you the tools you need to, you know, if you didn't want to write your own rule on day one and feel like you have the context you need to make those decisions, we provide that out of the box. But then the engine is flexible enough to build and kind of piece together how you want to respond to different things because every organization's different. Some folks use namespaces and wacky ways and you want to build alerts that have context um, in your environment. So it's really about empowering the end user to build what they want to build um, to get their job done. So it's a, it's a mix of both. But yeah, it's a never-ending process and it, it absolutely is not easy. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, walk us through how it kind of works. Like, how, you know, how do, how do you go about analyzing an environment and working out, like, okay, which one's internet accessible? I mean, I, you know, I get the external input part about, well, this one has a bug that is of this <laughs> severity and is being exploited in the wild. But how do you start working out, like, you know, what's open, what's not? I mean, I guess that's just yeah. all the information you hold, isn't it? Uh, it, it, it actually boils down to a real-time graph representation of a, a one or many clusters at any time, which is, uh, I, you know, I know that's the, the thing to be doing in security products these days, but in Kubernetes, we looked at this for a long time and it, 
really comes down to everything is a graph, right? And you have different nodes on the graph. You have subsets of the graph, like some of which are more access oriented via RBAC, some of which are network oriented, others are workload centric. But at the end of the day, you are querying nodes across a graph. And um, that gives us a baseline to expand into a variety of areas, right? So the three kind of core, I don't know, end users or teams that you know really get a lot of value out of this that we're seeing is security engineering, detection response, and in kind of a GRC function, right? Where you have uh, folks who need different types of data from the same system, but it's really powered by all of those security contexts continuously feeding one graph representation um, in real time of, of that environment. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it makes sense when you see it on the screen. Yeah, I'll just have to show you someday. Yeah, I mean, this is the second interview I've done this week about graph theory right? Because yeah. the other one was with Andy Robbins from SpectreOps. And, and, you know, they were talking about using graph theory to basically chain together subtle behaviors in various like Windows binaries and enterprise software to get like lolbin chains using, <laughs> okay. using graph analysis, right? And it feels like this is something that while it's had its you know, it's had its use cases in InfoSec uh, over the years. It, it sort of feels like it's something more and more people are looking at and trying to turn into, you know, something that's actually usable. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think graph technology has come, it's been around for a while, but um, yeah. highly unusable, uh, you know, five years ago. And we're seeing, you know, managed graph databases and things like that. And, and security when you think about an attacker, they don't really think in lists like a they table. They think in graphs, as <laughs> the famous graphs, blog right? post That's said. Yeah, yeah. Super famous. Um, and, you know, defenders need to do the same. And Kubernetes just, it it gets, just lends itself to a graph very nicely. Um, and you can kind of decorate the different metadata points of the graph to get out of it what you need as, you know, your practitioners kind of like what your boss is asking you to do on that given day um and i think that's the important part then the graph is just a means to that sort of end i mean i just looked it up right and that blog post which is defenders thinking lists attackers thinking graphs as long as that's uh as this is true attackers win that blog post is from 2015 <laughs> right we're we're still doing the same things from then anyways in security so yeah so tell me about the compliance use case here, because, you know, I don't, you, you mentioned earlier that there's different requirements between, you know, compliance and security teams, like walk us through the compliance challenges in, in Kubernetes, because I do not have the foggiest. Yeah. So I feel like we're in the teenage years of compliance and Kubernetes, where we have an idea of like what we need to do and, and something we've anchored on, which is typically like CIS benchmarks that we all love to kind of apply CIS benchmarks to everything and and call it a day but the the kind of compliance renaissance that's happening is is you know, we're finding um some of our customers are scanning their their clusters on uh weekly or quarterly or monthly cadences to like do compliance and um it's pretty fascinating when you reveal how fast things move in kubernetes and how little that that report means like a day after that you ran it so it's this continuous compliance that is uh, is not really being addressed very much inside of Kubernetes. And then you overlay the, the traditional user access review task, right? We all probably done this if you work in security where we have to see who has access to what and should they have access still this quarter. Um, when you go ask the question, how are you doing that for your Kubernetes users? The answer is, we don't. Why not? Right? <laughs> and, <laughs> and then you then dig in. It's like, well, what kind of access do these people have in these service accounts? Because I'm seeing lot, like every developer, like as much as we love to say no one accesses Kubernetes, we have all the automation to make our lives great. But like that's not the real world. People use kubectl and do things inside of a cluster. So when you ask again, like, well, what can this group do or this individual do? And it's like, I don't, I don't know everything. And then you kind of equate that to, okay, they have root SSH access on this box, essentially, right? And that box is like 100 boxes, and it's your cloud. So 
how are you reporting that up in the same kind of compliance uh, in GRC program to the rest of your systems? And the answer is like, it's very, very Im- ambiguous at this point. So mm. um, that's a that's a huge challenge um, going forward is just generally access control to these types of very, very sensitive infrastructure systems and monitoring that access, reviewing that access on a regular cadence and, and verifying least privilege. It, it's largely unanswered in most organizations. You know, I've seen this before over the years where someone starts a security company, you know, and then they wind up, the compliance use case is so much is, is is so essential, right? Like the security use case is nice, but the compliance use case is so essential that that's how they wind up selling their product to everyone. Is that kind of what's happening with KSOC? I, I come from a security background and a variety of, of, of security roles. And like, as much as I don't want to say, you know, we sell on compliance, like compliance, the budget exists and you, you either have it or you don't. And if you have a gap, there will become a, line item for you to fill the well, gap. Well, you need right? to close it. And that's what compliance <laughs> yeah. is, is always about, that's right? If there's about. a gap, and... you need to close it. And and honestly, yeah. like the compliance yeah. requirements that you just described to me for Kubernetes environments, like they don't sound stupid. Like it's not like the must have anti antivirus agent on Linux, you know, PCI derp compliance yeah. stuff, right? Like actually knowing who's got access where. It's a very simple know. yet effective thing. It's like <laughs> yeah, something Jimmy, you want to yeah. know, right? Jimmy can do a thing in production and he shouldn't be able to do it. Like very clear cut um, sort of requirements. Now where things get a, a little more hand wavy is like the CIS benchmarks and and you know these are great frameworks, but we lean on them so heavily and try to follow them to a T in Kubernetes. It's really difficult to have like a CIS compliant cluster to the nth degree, but I think there's still value in, in having that pass fail continuous um, assessment of your, all of your clusters. Uh, They do ensure, you know, their team gets their checkbox, but you also are doing the right things and you have the best practices in place to build out like a hardened kind of guardrail centric uh, environment. All right. Well, Jimmy Mester, thank you so much for joining us on the show to talk through what you've been up to. Appreciate it. Cool. Thanks, Patrick. That was Jimmy Mester from KSOC there. Big thanks to him for that and big thanks to KSOC for being a Risky Business sponsor. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Seriously Risky Business podcast with Tom Uren, uh, which you can find in our second RSS feed, the Risky Business News RSS feed. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Thank you.